Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, your host for our show and CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media. We produce CIO Leadership Live with the generous support of my colleagues at CIO.com and the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming right now to you on LinkedIn and Twitter, and we welcome all of our attentive viewers to join in the conversation today and, and type in questions of your own. We'll be watching for your questions during the show and able to pass them along to my guest today and respond. So my guest today is uh, Robert Pick, who is the Executive Vice President and CIO of Tokyo Marine North America Services. Headquartered outside of Philadelphia, Tokyo Marine North America was established in 2012 as the services division of the $45 billion global insurer, Tokyo Marine Holdings. Part of the Mitsubishi Group, Tokyo Marine is Japan's largest property and casualty insurer and, and employs 39,000 people around the world in 38 different countries. Bob joined the company in 2014 and became CIO in 2016. He now leads a nationwide team of technologists, about 275 folks internally in-house and more than 400 global IT contractors. As the CIO, he's responsible for everything from enterprise architecture and applications to user services, analytics, digital capabilities, and security. Under its shared services mission, TMNA provides tech services and solutions to the North American businesses that are part of the Tokyo Marine Group. And that includes companies such as Philadelphia Insurance Companies, First Insurance Company of Hawaii, and others. Before he stepped into his current role, Bob spent 11 years with media company Condé Nast, where his last position was Senior Executive Director for Technology and Acting Chief Information Security Officer. And before that, he served as a Principal Consultant for PricewaterhouseCoopers in their Enterprise Technology Integration Practice. Bob currently serves on a number of nonprofit and CIO advisory boards, including the Board of Trustees for the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra. Bob, welcome today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. I am too. Yes, and I, I neglected to say happy 2021 to everyone. We uh, started Leadership Live in November of 2017, so we are launching into our fourth year, and we've I've had the pleasure of talking to well more than 50 uh, outstanding chief information officers, digital officers, and technology officers on the program. Bob, let's start out, as I often do, with a big picture overview of how your business and your people are doing now that we're unfortunately nearly a year into our global pandemic. How are things going for you and the company and your folks? I would say, generally speaking, we're doing well. Um, the, the period of, of adaptation that occurred for, for really the world over the course of the first and second quarter last year um, went fairly well for us. Um, our user population was um, was extremely adept in being flexible, um, in uh, really taking um, uh, kind of uh, opportunity in their hands to self-serve and to problem solve with us. So we had a really engaged um, set of uh, roughly uh, 4,500 users that we support in the U.S. Um, and everybody worked together beautifully throughout that process. So the transition from work in the office to work from home was blessedly uneventful. Um, and then we settled in, uh, you know, through the course of the year. I think insurance generally had some ups and downs. Now, most of our uh, world that we support is commercial insurance, not exclusively, but most of it is on the commercial side. And we do focus on small business. Um, so watching that market um, and the ups and downs has been um, really uh, quite a trial. I think keeping the focus on a high degree of customer service, which, which we're known for, and really accelerating um, some of those efforts um, really kept us uh, 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 kind of focused on the right things throughout. Um, as we went through the process, as many companies in insurance and, and in every industry did, of figuring out how to engage effectively with a fully distributed workforce. Um, we were again lucky because work from home was part of how we delivered services anyways. It was just variable. Um, and it certainly was not the standard, um, but we had the technology underpinnings and we had many of the cultural underpinnings, at least in place in pockets. 
but figuring out how to engage as managers with staff, regardless of discipline, was was an interesting process. But once again, I think um, we were we benefited greatly from um, uh, staff that were open to new ideas, that were all very focused on just getting the job done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I think that that benefited uh, ourselves as well as the insureds and the the agents and business partners that we work with. But overall, coming into 2021. Um, we are intact. Our um, our IT portfolio of initiatives is as full as it's ever been, possibly even fuller. Um, <laughs> expectations are high for uh, accelerated digitalization, and which is a, a trend generally in insurance, um, mm-hmm. not not just specific to us. And I think folks are invigorated that to uh, that 2021 has to be better than 2020. <laughs> so there's a there's an invigoration that occurs just coming out of it, having uh, having made it through, um, keeping the teamwork and team spirit alive. And, and now we've got a fresh set of everything to begin with and a, and a somewhat clean slate to begin with 20, in mm-hmm. 2021. Well, and I know when I asked you um, earlier as we were getting ready for this show today, um, I often ask CIOs if uh, any sort of projects had to pause or, and you had mentioned that you just had one major pause in a product or a project and that otherwise it was kind of, you know, continuing on, marching forward as usual. That's absolutely the case. We We had one significant one that we paused and we intend to pick that up this year. Everything else, uh, we, we had to um, kind of tap the brakes on a few things just to uh, make sure that from a resourcing perspective, we could reprioritize effectively. Um, mm-hmm. But everything moved along the pace. And then a number of things were added on top of that, specifically yes. related to COVID. In, in the insurance world, it, uh, for the most part, it related to different, uh, in the US, obviously insurance is governed by states. Certain states had certain requirements Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to, in particular, to help out small business. Um, and so we had to adjust to those and, and were able to do so. So again, the, the work was additive, not subtractive. And I, it is interesting. I remember in the early days of COVID, um, speaking to a, a number of folks in and out of industry, the assumption was that we would have all sorts of available time because clearly things would would slow down and be paused as everyone just held their breath during COVID. Mm-hmm absolutely not the case. Uh, we're busier than ever. Um, and uh, the priorities have changed, um, but the themes and the initiatives really haven't. Um, yeah. It's just certain things are now we were looking to accelerate certain things, maybe are a little less critical at the moment. And so be trying to be nimble and work through that um, has really been the task. Yeah. At hand. Well, and I want to talk a little bit more about um what it's like running essentially a company that was built as a shared services organization because some uh, i've talked with many cios over the years who you know their companies at some point adopt that as a a a way of being and and a way of providing to all of their internal and external partners and customers but this is actually how the company was formed and for tokyo marine i was surprised when you told me that up until 2006 it was really not a globalized effort. It was, um, you said that not a dollar came to, into the company from outside of Japan. So uh, tell us a little bit about how that has developed and how quickly the company globalized. Yeah, Tokyo Marine is, is a really interesting company. Uh, you know, founded in the late 19th century, it was one of the, one of the, or the first um, insurance company in Japan. And again, as you mentioned, part of the Mitsubishi group. Um, but it, it really was uh, provided the risk management aspect of the westernization of the Japanese economy at the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, within a few years of founding, had offices in, uh, in London and in New York as well. So Tokyo Marine's been doing business in the U.S. for well more than 125 years. Um, but the focus was always around supporting um, the Japanese business and Japanese multinationals that were doing business internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, in beginning in the in, in the early 2000s, um, Tokyo Marine made a concerted effort to globalize um, by acquiring uh, companies outside of Japan on a very targeted basis. Philadelphia Insurance was one of the earlier ones, um, and now that we're you know 15, 16 years into that process, nearly 50% of gross and net revenue comes from outside of Japan. Which for any company is an extremely fast pace of globalization, but especially for a um, uh, a kind of stalwart 
Japanese company um, that has been around as long as uh, Tokyo Marine has. And it, I think it's a tribute to thoughtful management, very methodical approach, but also acquiring companies and letting them do their thing, um, which is, uh, has really worked out, um, I think, well for Tokyo Marine. Now, as a shared service entity, we are and have been in experiments. Um, you mentioned I was with Kane Nast, and that was also a shared services environment. So it's one that we're very familiar with. Um, but in insurance, it, it's an interesting take because each company really that we support has a different focus and even a, a slightly different uh, client base, both agents and insureds, different product mix. Right. Um, but IT is, uh, among others, we offer five uh, uh, shared services, so accounting and finance, actuary as a shared service as well, um, uh, legal and HR, um, internal audit as well. Um, and so uh, those were viewed as ones that there was enough synergy across the companies that it would make sense to uh, approach it as a shared service. And it's, it's really worked out quite well as a matter of cost containment yeah. um, and synergy. So when one company needs an initiative to achieve a business exec, uh, objective, we can make that um, uh, intellectual property, that method available to multiple of our companies. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely, uh, it's an evolution and a work in process as we look at how we support our three primary companies, um, uh, Philadelphia Insurance, Token Marine American, First Insurance Company of Hawaii. We also deliver point services to a number of other token marine companies on mm -hmm. an on-demand basis. Um, but I think what the team likes about it is it gives us the, the flavor of consulting without being a consulting company, because we have to put on different hats. We have to use different nomenclature terminology. We have to put ourselves in the seat of our client, which is the carrier that we're talking to, and really understand their business. And day to day, you're going meeting to meeting or conversation to conversation with different companies. It really gives that um, an energy from the differences that occur there. But also, um, it's a very interesting process to find the commonalities. And our, our mission is to find as many things in common so that we can be hyper-efficient and allow our business our, our carriers to focus on the things that really differentiate them. So yeah. they don't have to worry about the things that are in common. Well, that also sounds like the kind of business skills that we are increasingly looking for in our, a whole variety of technology experts that get hired into companies. Um, one of the things that <clears throat> you had mentioned uh, when we talked earlier was that a lot of insurance companies are doing, are rolling out similar technologies. Everybody's got, you know, chatbots and digital services, but with the market, but it's also quite varied uh, depending on what the market is. And so in the SMB space, small and medium-sized businesses, what are you seeing as kind of the, the major differences, the ones that we often read about when we're reading about the really big, well-known global brands that kind of dominate the insurance market in the U.S.? Yeah, and for the most part, when people think of insurance, they think of personal and personal lines insurance, yes. auto, home, and, and even life insurance. Um, which tends to be very high volume. And there are, there are some great companies that do really great work in providing excellent customer service to, to folks in those spaces. Um, being mostly focused in the commercial space, we kind of take some of those same cues and roll them for, for the, uh, the small and medium-sized business market. And I should note, we're not exclusively small and medium-sized business. We deal with multinational companies in a, at large scale, but our bread and butter is small and medium-sized business. And really, um, what, what we notice, and it's not unique to Tokyo Marine, it's in, industry-wide, is that uh, small business owners will often import expectations from their personal lines experience to commercial lines. So the, the degree of touch, the degree of digitalization, and those things is often more akin to personal lines than it is to a giant commercial um, uh, 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 policy uh, situation. So, um, so we have to think a little bit like that. But one of the things that I, I think our, our family of companies does well is listen to our insureds and listen to our agents um, uh, and, and, and try and react and proact where we can um, mm -hmm. to make sure that we're, uh, we're there when they need us in terms of the service but we're also uh, making it as easy as possible to kind of do business and keep in touch with us. So the notion of ease of doing business is not new um, by any, any stretch or frictionless transactions, however you want to, you know, from, from the year 2000 on up, whatever uh, nomenclature you want to use. But the idea is you want to make it as easy as possible 
um, to continue doing business and also as easy as possible on our staff to deliver great service to our insureds and our agents. Um, so, you know, the focus is uh, when you think of a, a giant commercial contract versus a small business, that small business, um, you're really, you're, you're, you're speaking to agents and owners of a business. And so it's a little bit of a different mindset than when you're speaking to someone who's kind of brokering um, a transaction on behalf of a larger uh, enterprise. Um, but the, the cues are, are highly similar. Um, uh, regardless, uh, I mean, it's insurance. Um, so it's, uh, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of commonality among the, the different approaches and lines of business. Um, but we think that high degree and high focus on service that we offer, and again, it's, it's not just to those that are insured by us, but also the agents that we work with every day, because they're mm -hmm. a critical part of providing service to our insureds along with us as a carrier. It's that that three-legged mix that's really important to making sure that we're, we're delivering in the way that we, we need to. Um, well, a lot of times that delivery also really does still need to be a human-to-human -human <clears throat> conversation. You can't necessarily send someone to a, a new digitized process. Um, does that affect the economies of how you provide these different technologies? It, it does. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, everyone does have chatbots and, and IVR call trees and those sorts of things. That's just a fact of life. But being able to provide a person at the other end of the phone. Um, is really critical. And actually, even within the IT group, um, our, our service desk operation is, is personal. We, we could emphasize to a greater degree self-service and chat-based support, but actually we've chosen to emphasize call the service desk or use um, our, our, our ticketing system to op open a ticket. But we still have a lot of folks that call the service desk and that's okay. Um, because our first call resolution is often north of 74, 75%, which is shockingly high. But part of the reason for that is we do give the amount of time necessary to actually resolve the issue. And I think we're reflecting the businesses that we support in that regard. They're willing to give the time, the human time to actually solve that issue. And nothing is perfect. Um, but the idea of asking uh, whether it's a small business owner, a large business owner, someone who runs a, a yoga studio or a gym, to actually deal unendingly with the chatbot, that's not really what we're what we're aiming for. We're aiming to hear their issue and solve it as quickly as we can. And you're right, that changes the technology mix and it also changes the human aspect of that. And where other companies maybe have gone in a direction of technology first with a lot of customer service related elements, I think we're, we're very much a balanced company. We have technology, but the technology underpins humans and people that take calls from other real people um, who are looking for service and having their issue addressed. Yeah, well, and that actually, I think this plays in well to our first question from our alert listening and watching audience. And the question is, did you experience any specific information needs during the pandemic time? And I think we could apply that both to your, your staff inside the company, but also to the customers and the information needs and how that changed. What would you say to that? Yeah, definitely. And taking the internal view first, um, working with our, our various corporate HR teams to understand where people were, even as it relates to um, uh, reporting of potential COVID contacts, those sorts of things that we all um, had to get used to doing and making sure that information flow um, was, was working. And we were getting to our staff population where they were. Um, luckily, we have a, a fairly strong, uh, a very strong uh, business continuity management team that happens to reside in IT, but works across our, our different carrier companies. Um, so we were actually using some of our uh, uh, emergency communication mechanisms because they also allow people to quickly respond and track so we would know where folks were. And this is to, uh, especially in the early days of work from home, to make sure everybody was getting settled and okay. The number of surveys that we did internally was marked. I mean, it, we, we did a lot of surveys to make sure that we were collecting information, hearing people, both what was working, what wasn't working, how are they doing, what do they need, those sorts of things. So that definitely created um, a great need for information processing in a, in a very ad hoc way initially. Um, we were able to bring teams together that hadn't necessarily worked together to a great extent previously, but a lot of focus group-like work and a lot of uh, kind of data analysis, literally teams that would read through um, uh, free form answers to questions on surveys and interpret those and categorize those and help us understand the needs. 
On the external facing, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of information requirements coming from departments of insurance in the various states, a lot of new requests for information, but also new requirements. Um, one that's been well advertised in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the news is making sure that um, business owners didn't have certain policies canceled for non-payment in early in COVID, wanted to give them a little bit more relief time. Well, we had to react to that. Um, and, and that definitely took a lot of information discovery, data we already had, in yeah. many cases, reports that we already had, but looking at that information for a different purpose and mm -hmm. also turning it around much more quickly and making sure that we were um, not just reacting to regulatory requests, but trying to be proactive with regard to information needs of our agents and insureds to get stuff out to them quickly um, and even ahead of when we had to, to make sure that they would know simply what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, that really demanded us uh, to be able to nimbly look at our data and yeah. be able to repurpose the, that data and those reports quickly and get that out for decision-making and ultimately for dissemination purposes. Yeah, well, the um, I'm thinking about those uh, 275 mm -hmm. technologists you have working for you directly in-house as employees of Tokyo Marine. How do you have, uh, given your shared services mission and this different market that you're, you're sharing your services with and serving, um, how do you have that organized? As Since you've taken over as CIO in 2016, did you restructure it? Do you have like a, a data group specifically, uh, an emerging tech group? How, how is it all set up? Yeah, we, we um, actually, for many years, we adopted what we called a domain structure. So we had a domain that was strategy, which included architecture, business relationship management, a domain of development, which is all the traditional areas of development, including data um, data and analytics, domain that was infrastructure and operations, domain of security, and a domain of um, program and project management or administration and governance. Um, in the last couple of years, though, we've adapted that a little bit um, uh, because we've created a, a deputy CIO structure so that we're able to have really two dimensions. One is by skill set and discipline. The mm -hmm. other is by group companies that we're supporting. So we wanted to have that business focus in addition to the technology discipline. So for example, our deputy CIO for Philadelphia Insurance is also our vice president for applications. So she has two different dimensions. She has to care to take um, activities uh, broadly across all the different domains for Philadelphia Insurance, but also day-to-day -day runs the discipline of application development. Um, and then in the um, data and analytics space, we align that data and analytics with what we call business experience, which is BA and QA largely, as well as release management and our digital group together. Because these are the folks who are really heavily involved once ideation occurs and kind of the business need is understood, they're really sorting out how to articulate that and then working with application development to get it built, et cetera. But that's where the digital group which is small but mighty, we say, has really grown um, over the course of, of the last few years. Um, and we've been able to adopt into that digital group a more of an R&D type function and flavor. So they're out scanning just uh, for te new tech and insure tech, but they're also working with our existing stable of software OEM vendors, as well as our, our services partners to understand how we can apply existing technology better to new business challenges that we have. So we have a, a fairly healthy um, uh, uh, kind of a program of uh, technical proofs of concept that serve as our launching pad now. Once we technically prove something we can, done, can be done, we then go and get our businesses excited about the potential of it. Um, we used to do some in the reverse where everybody would get excited and then the technical challenges would kick in. But that's been a key growth area for us is really um, opening things up to explore more in proofs of concept in an R&D fashion where we're not holding ourselves to these extremely high bars of immediate value received. We technically prove out what we can. We make sure that the relationship with the potential vendor or partner is good. And then we begin to incorporate that into the solutions that we're providing for our group companies. Interesting. Um, I will just take a pause now and say, if you're just joining us and tuning in, I'm Mary Fran Johnson, and we're here on CIO Leadership Live talking with Bob Pick, who is the CIO and Executive VP of Tokyo Marine North America, which is a shared services company for the Japanese-based Tokyo Marine Holding. Um, we were talking about all of the ways that 
your IT folks are essentially organized and how things are structured. And I think that that also plays into when we think about on the agent side, we have a question from our alert readers and listeners about whether extreme digitization or digitalization will eventually replace agents. And uh, that's, you know, an understandable concern. From what you've told me on the small and medium-sized businesses, commercial insurance is very bespoke to different industries and that it requires it may be lower volume, but it's higher premiums as a result that there's a certain amount of finesse involved that is much more human to human. So I'm guessing that I already know the answer to that, but you tell us. Yeah. And these are these are broad industry questions as well. So not just, uh, you know, really going more from token marine up to industry. Um, personal lines is a very different market than commercial lines. Um, and there's a lot of direct to consumer for personal lines. And, and a lot of it is very successful. There is also a lot of very successful, high value um, agent based personal lines businesses done. Um, in the commercial space, um, uh, the vast preponderance of it remains agent based. And frankly, for us, agents are an incredibly valuable part of this system. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, really don't see that changing because of the factors that you mentioned. Um, a, a commercial lines uh, policy is something that's, that's really just off the shelf. There's conversation needs to occur, especially with small and medium sized business, but also with large business as well. But we view agents as a critical part of our business. Um, and part of our goal is to digitally enable them with regard to our companies. Um, and COVID has certainly accelerated that. This isn't a, a local statement. This is a, an industry-wide statement. Um, the adoption of all manner of digital technologies for agents, for insureds, and for carriers and MGAs and everybody else in the insurance chain um, has definitely accelerated. There's very little that's brand new that's come about as COVID, but the pace of adoption, the willingness to adopt, um, is key. And it's been well covered uh, over many years that insurance generally is going through a generational change right now. Yes. The newborn generation begins to retire. Um, and those agent owners are looking to either hand it on to the next generation of, of their own ownership or their own family, if it's a family agency, or to sell. That, uh, that definitely over the years had created a, a little bit of a bifurcation in, in the um, uh, digital capabilities of agents. Um, some of that is just generational, regardless of industry. There's always the kind of generational things in adoption of technology. COVID has erased some of that. Um, it, people got pretty good with Zoom meetings pretty quick yeah. uh, or whatever the flavor of video conferencing you choose to use. People got pretty comfortable with digital signatures pretty quick because mm -hmm. they had to. It was really the only way. And with that comes opportunity, comes interest. And it actually, that acceleration really facilitates digital engagement I mean, for any industry, but insurance in this case specifically. So that digital, digital engagement, the possibilities have actually improved as a result of COVID. And I think when we think of our interaction with, with all of our agents, um, it's really about that mutual digital enablement. Are we ready to be digital? Are you ready to be digital? Fine, let's be efficient together. And those conversations are a lot more fun to have than some of the other ones years ago that we would have about what is digital and trying to describe all these things. So COVID has really helped move that along for the industry as a whole. Well, that's great. And we, we may have partly already answered then this next question from our audience is what advice you would share with your colleagues for adopting or implementing digital solutions during and after a pandemic with team members that are pretty much all located remotely right now? It is, uh, it's, it's definitely challenging for everybody. And this is not in any way industry specific, I think. Um, part of uh, what COVID has revealed and reinforced is that technology is a part of every business. Mm -hmm. So you can't be in business and not understand technology. And I don't, by that, I don't mean you have to be a coder or be able to uh, you know, configure a firewall, but you have to understand technology. And in many industries for a long, long time, and, and you know, I was in the media industry for years and, and you've been for, for many, many years, mm -hmm. uh, there was definitely a willingness to kind of absolve people of the, uh, of the responsibility to understand the technology, just go and, and get this done. Well, yeah. now I think COVID has really revealed and also encouraged people to own, own their technology knowledge set and become a little bit more self-sufficient and become a little bit more knowledgeable about the technology they're using. Mm -hmm. So with that, with that additional gumption, you can call it, 
I think asking all staff members, all team members to be a little bit more technology enabled themselves um, helps them feel a little bit more comfortable about the pace of adoption having increased. Yes. And I know we have um, uh, sister companies that have um, uh, made significant changes through uh, COVID in adopting whole new video delivery platforms. We ourselves changed um, uh, one of our access platforms in the middle of COVID and it went really well. But in part, I think it went better than it would have pre-COVID because everyone had that mindset of, I am going to read the email, I am going to read the quick re reference guide, read the manual, if you will, and I am going to understand this because I have to in order to do my job. So the more that we can adopt that teamwork sense when it comes to technology, and, and you and I have talked before, I'm a big believer that there are very, very few technology projects. They're all business, or almost all of them are business projects. They're just powered by technology. I think that became real for a lot of people that we're here to support our business. We're not here to do technology in a vacuum because it's fun. We're here to support our business. So we learn to speak business and our business needs to learn to speak a little tech. And this has really accelerated that. So by using that, even with a distributed team, I think with people's understanding of technology having improved, even if it's just by degrees, mm -hmm. I think us as technologists being able to rely a little bit more on that, that they are gonna take, take that extra step to learn allows us to be a little bit more comfortable with change as we're rolling out because the pace is definitely increasing. But the communication mechanisms are key using all of the, the video and, and audio conferencing capabilities, all the electronic communications, um, all the ability that uh, if companies didn't have it before COVID, they do now to centrally manage or push or provide, if it's not centrally managed, but provide the right application kit, the right OS role, all those sorts of things to, to users. All of those are advantages now that we, if you didn't have them, you've got them now. And I think those are going to help digitalization um, as we go forward. And I mean, rational digitalization, not, not for the sake of it because it's groovy and cool, but because it makes business sense to do so. Yeah, well, and I've, I've often, I think probably for the last 15 years or more, <clears throat> CIOs have talked about, and I've often characterized it as that that bridge over the river technology. You know, there were the technology people on one side and the business people on the other. And it was always the tech people that were going over and learning the language of the business and trying to understand that. There was never any realistic expectation that people from the business side would be coming over and trying to learn more about technology. And it's a, uh, it, I think it's a really beneficial upswing in that kind of interest. And uh, let me see, and that actually plays into uh, another one of our questions, since we're talking, we're, we're getting a little bit into the weeds about technology. Is there any technology or what technology will have the most significant impact on the insurance landscape in the next five years? Mm -hmm. And you can talk globally about insurance everywhere, or you can talk more specifically about Tokyo Marine. Yeah, I think the, the easiest way is probably to go globally and just kind of generally I think definitely we're, we're well into an era where the, um, the ability to integrate, um, but integrate loosely, microservices, APIs, whatever uh, jargon you want to use, is now mature. Um, and being able to take advantage of that is, is, is key. Um, and that's really kind of from the, from the insurance enterprise. But in terms of insurance, as it interoperates, with, uh, with, the with the companies and the industries that insurance supports. Um, I do finally see things like blockchain, which I've said for years was a, a, a solution in search of a problem, um, yes. are now becoming real. The immutability of it to be able to, um, you know, help, for example, with the chain of, uh, of ocean marine cargo um, and show that it's been handled correctly and arrived and all those sorts of things. That gets very interesting for, for the insurance world globally. Um, for sure, and not at all specific to insurance, is low-code, no-code, um, which, again, has gotten a lot of press, um, and a lot of it is, uh, at least initially, was a rational exuberance, in, in my opinion, but now has become more rational exuberance um, as the platforms have gotten better. Do I think that means that programmers are, are no longer needed in the space? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I do think, again, enabling newly technology conversant business folks to have more of a stake and more hands-on involvement in actually creating their own solutions. I think that's gonna be, uh, that's gonna be real key. Um, 
insurance generally uh, over the last couple of years, uh, telematics um, have, have really become a huge part of it. Um, in the IoT space, I think many personal lines um, carriers, uh, particularly for auto, allow you to get a discount for plugging in things. This is well beyond that though, because when you think of insurance of a building, um, being able to tap into a building management system to know how the boilers are doing and how the heat is and are there leaks and those all those things have been well covered over the last few years, but now the tech is really getting mature and the ability to consume that is really becoming, uh, growing at a more sophisticated level. Um, the final thing I'll mention is, um, and it's, it's really core to insurance. Insurance at its core is a data industry. Um, and, uh, you know, I have some actuary friends that joke that the original predictive analysts are actuaries 300 years ago who were sorting out all these, all the tables and all the, the algorithms to be able to figure out what was going to happen. And really, they're, they're right. But um, I think that, again, the maturation of tooling for modeling um, mm -hmm. has really hit a nice stride. And insurance, generally, all different lines and, and flavors, the ability and the availability of data has never been better. It's still very complicated because there is no universal insurance data model. There are a number of plays right now as, as in the open banking uh, initiative, there's now open insurance and, and other things, but there's no universal hitchhiker's guide babblefish to translate all this stuff. Um, but there, the ability to get close to that and the ability to interoperate, to ingest data and also to present data um, has really never been better or easier. So I think these are these are some of the potential game changers for insurances and industry as we go forward, none of which is really new information. But I think as the tools and as solution providers get better with using these tools to come to folks like us and say, here's, here's how we think this could change your business. I think it's that degree of sophistication is really begin, beginning to hit a stride in some of these areas recently. That, uh, well, that may not be the, uh, the final answer to all of it, but it's certainly well expressed. So thank you. That was a really very, that was a very thoughtful response. This is why I love this whole format where we can get questions from people that are your peers and colleagues who can ask things at a level of expertise that other CIOs have. And here's another one and more specific, you'd mentioned kind of taking an R&D approach, uh, R&D based approach in some of your groups, your development groups. What is the benefit of that versus adopting agile practices across the board, or is it one in the same? I just, that's a great question. Yeah, the answer is both. Um, and uh, I think, you know, when I think of the insurance industry and coming in from outside insurance, um, there are a few things that were relatively hair raising uh, coming in, and that is the tolerance for stale data. Um, mm -hmm. And it's still a ubiquitous challenge and tolerance where the insurance industry, a lot of it can can handle and work with data that's 30 days old, which in, you know, coming in the media and telecommunications, if it's hours old, it's, it's, it's useless. Um, that was one aspect. The other though, yeah, the other though was um, the, the nature of core systems in the insurance industry, the core being policy billing and claim systems. And there are other, you know, uh, permutations of that. These systems in many cases are so complicated, particularly policy, so complicated that it's very difficult to see your way toward a more agile approach with them. Uh, it takes time and you really have to understand, you have to have a great team and great confidence in that team to be able to begin to approach that. So we took a number of years where we were operating uh, essentially as waterfall, but I would say a lot of it was hybrid. So we would have sprints, but it would end in a waterfall and, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, within the last couple of years though, we're, we've gotten to a point, and I think this is true of many in the industry, we've gotten to a point where um, things are working as efficiently as they can with that model. So we need to do something different in order to gain efficiency and nimbleness um, to accelerate our ability to deliver and also to be able to include our business more in that process every single day of developing so and delivering solutions for them. Um, so Agile, for and I've said this well before joining Tokyo Marine, Agile for, for me is, is not a religion or anything like that. It is just a method. It's one method we use. It's not a goal even, it's just a method. But Agile can help with that nimbleness of delivery and that hermetically sealing the business into those projects so they don't become IT projects, they become or they stay business projects as they should. So for us, 
The R&D aspects of it and doing technical proofs of concept is really a foundational feeder for a lot of things that we do. Some of them become projects that then deliver a technology solution or a business solution. Some of them really just help us understand the technology landscape so that we can better deliver that which we already do, either better in terms of quality, in terms of speed, um, you know, turnaround time to market, or in terms of the resource and cost efficiencies there. Yeah. So the answer is, is really that R&D and the proof of concept structure that we have put in place is really feeding ideas that are now vetted and prove, proven into the pot that still operates our vast portfolio of projects, enhancements, the operational aspects of, of, what, of that which we follow. But we're definitely increasingly agile-ish. Um, but once again, our goal is not to be agile. Our goal is to deliver timely, cost-efficient, high-quality solutions. And if that, if agile helps us get there, fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, but it's not it's not actually the end goal for us. Well, I I love that term agile ish. I haven't I haven't heard that one a lot. What I have uh, admired about and liked in the conversations I've had about agile with other CIOs is what a difference it seems to actually make in terms of people and the way they work together. It's as much a mindset change. It doesn't need to be, you know, 7 a.m. daily stand-ups for 10 minutes. It actually needs to also speak to the company culture and who's getting what done and how are they sharing that information between them. Um, that's a very typical editor-type reaction to think about all things in terms of the communication. Um, and I want to actually shift over to that and talk about some of the people aspects that uh, I just seem to have a lot more conversations with CIOs now about empathy and, you know, working on that not so much work-life balance about how's your productivity when you're not in the office, but now nowadays, how's your life balance when the office is following us all around on Zoom all day long? And I know that's something you have some really interesting thoughts on, especially in how it was managing in the early days, like on all this video connection we have now compared to now. So talk about that, some of the things that you've learned and what you've seen about how not just CIOs, but also their staffs should be pacing themselves. Yeah, they, I think the easiest way to put it, we've gone from work-life balance to life-work balance. <laughs> That's great. And, uh, and looking at initially as we went full uh, work from home and, and we were not unique in this regard, um, we spent a lot of time really working to ensure engagement, checking in on staff, asking managers to check in on staff, staff to check in on managers, everybody checking on, on everybody else. Um, with the, uh, the, um, the collaboration platforms that we have, everybody on video all the time. We want to see your face. We want to make sure that we can you know, all still interact. And our, our, um, our HR team was wonderful with the events that they put on and not just the virtual happy hours, but really trying to draw engagement out of folks so that we didn't uh, risk people feeling isolated professionally or even personally. We wanted to be a part of that process of helping people transition into this weird state um, and feel comfortable with it. Um, I have to say, we also had um, our, our CEO was, was really quite wonderful in being very clear with all of us that uh, I think the, the comment was that if you're on a call and the dog is barking or your child is crying, you get off the call, you go and address the child. And if you can't get them to stop crying, come back and we'll reschedule the meeting. Mm -hmm. That is a major cultural statement um, that is really important, especially in the early days of COVID. They got everyone from being very worried about how this was all going to work to realizing that we're just people and we're going to figure it out. Um, and so that was huge. Flash forward six or nine months. Um, and with all that working relatively well, no one would claim perfection or, or no um, you know, potholes in the road, but with all of it working relatively well, um, then you get to the other end of it where there's a little bit of fatigue that sets in because people are now so used to being on video that they, the, being on ubiquitous video can begin to feel like you're, you're always being watched or, or somebody's always there. And even just when you think of it logistically, when you're in a room with people physically, People intuitively understand, innately understand that you can only make eye contact with one person at a time. There's no competition for, for that. Yeah. But on a video call, when you have a Brady Bunch screen of nine people there, 
naturally, at least folks I've talked to about this, uh, we all tend to agree, we're constantly trying to make eye contact up and down with all the different people because that's our way just innately. We want to engage with people. It can be exhausting. Um, So now thinking about how we change this, how we maybe loosen that up a little bit, allow people who are doing well and they're performing well and they're balancing in, in whatever way works for them and their families to have a little bit more um, um, uh, a little bit more room to maneuver. That's the next challenge because the, the way we engage, we all proved ourselves, we gain confidence as a team that we're working, we can do it, we can working well, but now we've been doing it for, well, it's pushing a year, you know, 10 months at this point. So how do we need to adapt to that? And I think the, the key thing is listening and not just listening to staff, but listening up, out, down, and also listening to partners and watching what other companies are doing this is nothing insurance specific. This is how humans and work environments are interacting. Um, and I think part of the, the, one of the most important things is just making sure that folks know you are listening and you're willing to adapt and you're open to thoughts, even if you can't adapt, uh, adopt every single idea, yeah. just hearing it and being open and doing the surveys and having the conversations is half the battle. But now it's, it's really... How do we make sure that people can take a break, do take a break? Because yes. um, the, the benefit of only being five minutes away from your office is that work is only ever five minutes away. Um, right. And you, you, encouraging people strongly to escape that um, is, is important. And it's tough whenever so much isn't open. They can't just fly across country. They can't do the vacation they used to do. So That's it right. is a challenge. But the listening part is the most critical in my view. I think that, well, that I think that's a great answer. And I do think that that in terms of people issues in the workplace, whether your workplace is, you know, following you around at home or whether you actually are going back into a building. And at some point in 2021, that will be happening with a lot of companies. And I, I think this ongoing conversation about the, I like the idea of life work balance. And uh, also I like the idea that we don't all, necessarily want to be on a video call at eight o'clock in the morning you know i'm always i'm always pointing out like from from a female perspective that there's a lot more involved in my hair than there is in yours right (laughs) and yes there's a whole different product set there's makeup you know there's lighting there's the whole thing it's a big magilla um we have actually and there's related to that there's a, a great question from our audience and i Maybe this is, as you talked about, you know, everybody snapping out of their malaise in 2021. These are wonderful questions we're getting. What technologies did you adopt during the pandemic that will stay as part of the new normal, the next normal? Um, I think we can we can set aside video conferencing and collaboration tools because those are obvious answers. What else do you see that might continue or maybe that you'd like to see continue? Yeah, it's interesting because it wasn't so much new tech that we brought in, like we, we had a major gap, we filled it due to COVID and now we're gonna to continue to use it. The big change for us was adoption and usage of existing tools. Um, so, and you know, the collaboration is obviously the easy, easiest example, um, but it's not, it's not just, you know, whether it's uh, Zoom and, and, and or WebEx or, or Teams, and we're, we're in the process of, of moving into Teams at this point, but um, um, it really is, uh, users being willing and interested to adopt and adapt into the tools that were already present to them, but maybe it just wasn't interesting to them or it wasn't really a clear focus. Things like that, that are maybe a little bit more uh, predictable, things like electronic signature, e-check, uh, we call it e-everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were, again, existing technologies and they were fairly ubiquitously used, but there were some dark corners that hadn't quite gotten to. And those were areas that we had to go in and, and solve for very early on, either by doing a workaround or by pushing adoption of that. But those things were largely there. I, but I, I would fall back on, it's not so much new technology, it's users actually adopting it and making use of it at, in quantity at scale every day. Um, is the difference that that we saw. We really, there, I'm, I'm thinking back, there's really nothing in terms of a new platform or even a widget that we introduced specifically as a result of COVID. Um, we were already in the midst, uh, had planned in 2020 to change a few of our underlying technologies. 
things like VPN and even our collaboration system, those we went forward with. So, but that was a natural, uh, a natural uh, uh, project that we had planned without regard to COVID. COVID just changed some of the timing and a little bit of the rollout strategy. But other than that, it really was more, it's really more about what users are now saying, I need this versus before, well, I do most of my meetings in person or I can walk over and, or send this by mail and get that signature. Well, now those things are more or less off the table. So they've adopted into the tech that was already there. Yeah, that excellent. The um, And that reminds me, we've talked a lot about agents and customers and working with your own staff. How about relationships with your vendors, your partners, your, your own technology suppliers? Because you're CIO over a group of seven or 800 people around the world, but a big chunk of those are managed services. So they don't work directly for you. But And I, I know you're something of an expert on this. I've seen, I've listened to some interviews you've done about vendor management. And this is just a really, this is a great area of expertise, probably for any CIO, but you have been, you I think have particularly a lot of wisdom to share on that. So uh, treat us to your thoughts on relationships with the vendors with insourcing and outsourcing, how that has shifted for you uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, well, no pressure with that lead up. <laughs> now, I, I think um, the, the key for us is we made a decision a number of years ago. Um, we initially had a wide variety of, of vendors um, that were involved in delivering services to us. And we made a decision a few years ago to move from vendor to partner. Um, and uh, a vendor is, some, is a company we buy something from. A partner is a company that we're in business with. And so the idea there is that we went, um, we, we uh, over a few years, uh, winnowed down um, the breadth of, of, of companies that we're doing business with for services, going to fewer but much deeper relationships uh, with those vendors. So frankly, that paid off during COVID because we, we, we had uh, settled on a relatively small number of high value, high quality partners. Um, and we were able to avoid not all, but the vast majority of the challenges that I saw uh, some other folks going through with regard to communication as to what was happening, where they stood, um, uh, particularly uh, taking the example in India, um, in certain uh, cities and, and regions in India, they got very short notice to move to a, a full work from home stance. Yes. And in IT outsourcing, Generally speaking, that works pretty well because there's already a lot of enablement with um, with VDI and, and, and those sorts of things. But with business process outsourcing, yes. that was much more challenging. And there there's some fairly legendary stories now. Um, it seems like 10 years ago, but just 10 months ago, of some particularly small and mid-sized BPO outfits just collapsing. They couldn't get the work moved to home. Um, and, and so uh, that created challenges. We were able to avoid that. Um, by A, I think having a lot of the right partners, but B, um, by having um, uh, more substantial, deeper relationships and conversations, um, the, the sense of teamwork was very, very strong among our, our key five or, or six partners. And so the communication was really excellent. Um, and when it comes to some of the things that, that all of us had to do, but particularly regulated industries, um, mm -hmm. like you know, financial services, banking, and insurance, um, there are a lot of things we had to do to make sure that things were secure at home like they were in the office. Yes. Um, and some of these were, while they're easy to technically envision and even technically implement, the training aspects, the contractual aspects, the, um, uh, you know, the various things that we have to ensure each individual person is trained in this and they mm -hmm. attest that they have been trained, those sorts of things, could have been brutal. It actually went really well. Um, and and uh, I, th I, I credit our business continuity management team, which basically declared our pandemic beginning at the end of January. Yeah. And so we had the month of February where we were actively working with our partners um, uh, and as well as a number of vendors just to kind of vet and make sure we understood where they, they were with their journey in COVID and they understood where we were. And we were able to talk about mutual needs and expectations early and often. Um, but I think that the communication was so critical. The tech is the easy part. Um, the training, the contractual issues, security and, and privacy related issues are the hard part. 
Um, but we ended up faring well. And I think many companies, you know, had similar experiences because this was a global phenomenon and everyone wanted to do well for all the folks that they're supporting in business. Uh, if this had just been a phenomenon in one region, the results may have been a little different. Um, we'll never know. Um, but I think um, it, it definitely showed that our strategy of going to fewer but deeper relationships with our services partners, at least in this instance, was certainly a, a credible one and ended mm -hmm. up paying um, paying some dividends for both us and them. Because yep. we, I, from feedback from them, we ended up being one of the easier clients to work with because we were able to have those conversations and we had gotten a lot of this worked out early on. We weren't the ones running up at the last minute saying we need ABC, X, Y, and Z. And that worked well for them as well. That's great. Well, you had a great story out of Costa Rica about um, what you did with your help desk. Talk about yeah. not, not worrying about asking for forgiveness rather than permission in this case, right? And I completely credit our deputy CIO for infrastructure and operations um, uh, who, who did this. And that was our, um, our uh, service desk, IT service desk in Costa Rica, um, actually moved to work from home before we announced it. Um, so we wanted to make sure that everything was worked out and it went flawlessly. Um, uh, they, they really did a great job, but it was one of these little tricks um, that, that for done for all the right reasons and all the right ways, but it was actually a happy little surprise for us to be able to tell our businesses, you don't need to worry about that because four weeks ago we did that. Um, and, and so at the end, by the end of February, we were already operating our service desk um, uh, offsite. Uh, in Costa Rica, and that worked out very, very well, and they still are operating in that manner today. And there was no need to ask for forgiveness because it just became an, oh, by the way, <laughs> you know, we're doing this. I want to spend our last couple minutes, Bob, talking about leadership lessons. And it's been really fascinating during the whole pandemic to see how much those have changed for CIOs. What are some of the what are the, some of the leadership qualities that you feel you've been developing as the CIO during the past year? Things that maybe feel a little different to you than, or, or than an answer you might have given two years ago. Yeah, I think um, the biggest one is um, ensuring that I externally share the confidence that I have internally in the team. Um, and I think a lot of us go around and this, this goes, it's, it's too simple to talk about delegation and distributed decisioning and that sort of stuff. It's well beyond that. But if, if you feel your team is good and knows what it's doing, tell them. Um, and in this case, COVID provided ample opportunity and reason to reinforce um, verbally and very publicly the confidence that I already had in the team. Yeah. Um, but maybe I just didn't feel the need to share that quite as, as vocally as I had previously. And I think um, that, that really, it, it kind of heartens the, 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 the staff members to know that mm -hmm. I and, and our management team really do have confidence in them. And that confidence was really well placed because yeah. they did really well and they continued to do really well. So that was a, a key learning for me that I definitely want to carry forward mm -hmm. is don't hold that back. Don't be, don't be judicious and stingy with okay. saying, I believe in you folks and I, I know you can do this and you're doing it. You, by the way, you've already done it. Yeah, you know, move, the, move the, the service desk to home, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So that was one key thing. The other is, um, and it was really a reinforcement, but definitely a, a kind of a heightening of listening matters and listening is probably the most important thing. Um, you know, like, like you, I, I talk a lot, you know, I, I write a lot and I talk a lot. Um, but being willing and being able and forcing yourself to step back and, and listen a little bit more, even if it's only 10% more, listen a little bit more, but also keep in touch um, with not only those who you report to and who report to you, but everyone. Um, and we do, uh, we do a lot of things with, um, with lunches that are multiple skip levels and, uh, and, th and those sorts of things, just to keep in touch, even just the one-on-one -on -one phone call and saying, hey, how you doing? Uh, in particular, there are a couple of folks that used to sit outside of my office um, that I, I just hadn't been in touch with for a long time. So just schedule a little time. How you doing? I used to hear the jokes and I would know when you're going on vacation and these things and the cruise that you like. And, and I lost that. We'll gain it back. Um, you can go ahead and do that. And, um, and they appreciate it. But more importantly, I appreciate it because uh, I learn and I hear and that degree of connectedness is something I want to carry forward. The final one is, and it's always been a big, big part of, of, of our world, is have a sense of humor. 
Um, <laughs> just don't sweat the small stuff and be able to laugh at the dog barking, the Zoom that goes wrong, the vendor demo that just goes terribly because the tech blew up in the middle of it. Have a sense of humor. It's okay. We'll get through it and we'll, we'll try again another day. Exactly. Exactly. We will all live to fight another day. And uh, I think that those are all those are all absolutely great ones. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I do think that there is so much to be said for appreciation and just telling people you appreciate them. And I've heard from so many people that are uh, today when you ask that question, how are you doing? We're actually it's not a cliche anymore. We really mean it. You know, how are things going? And uh, and you can uh, you you can get a lot of connection with people that way, even if you can't. Even though we're staring into a little green dot on our computer, actually, instead of someone's eyes, you can get a lot out of that. And I'm sure that all of our listeners today got a lot out of this conversation too. So thank you so much, Bob, for joining us and making the time to be our very first guest of the new year on CIO Leadership Live. Happy to. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, if you joined us late, do not despair. You can watch the full version of my uh, conversation with Bob later uh, today on both CIO.com and YouTube. And speaking of that, please take a moment when you're on YouTube to sign up for IDG Tech Talk. You can catch the audio podcast of this on any of the major podcasts uh, platforms. And a Tech Talk actually also includes the entire library of CIO Leadership Lives that we've been recording since late November of 2017. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today with CIO Bob Pick of Tokyo Marine North America, and that you'll join me again two weeks from today on Wednesday, January 20th, same time, noon Eastern. And I'll be joined by Angela Yoakum, who is the Chief Transformation and Digital Officer at Novant Health. And one of the very special subjects we're going to talk about with Angela is all of the board and governance experience that she has a, 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 accumulated along with all of her uh, CIO accomplishments. I think it'll be a fascinating conversation, as I have to admit it usually is with my CIO guests. So thanks for tuning in today. And thanks again to my colleagues at the CIO Executive Council and CIO.com for their sponsorship and their continuing support of our CIO Leadership Live. Stay safe and well out there in the world, and we'll see you here next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.